Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. This is the show's producer, Trent, again with a little bit more admin. Uh, actually, not more admin. It's the exact same admin as last week, to be honest. Just a reminder that if you are a Patreon supporter, make sure you listen all the way to the end when we'll be announcing the name of another winner of a big box of books from the overflowing shelves of Robin, Josie and myself. And if you would like to be one of the people who could win a big box of books and get exclusive episodes and support the show, you can uh, make a donation and become a patron of the show at cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, or you can make a one-off donation using PayPal if you like, or you can just listen to the show and enjoy it. As long as we keep making the show, we'll always make sure it is uh, all the main episodes are free to listen to. And, yeah, so that's that. Admin over. Here's Josie. Hello. Welcome. No, no, no. Let's not use that. Or we can use this bit as well, but, you know. Hello. Welcome to Josie. No. Hello. Welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, our lovely podcast about books. Uh, I'm doing the introduction today, and I've really given it a professional flair, I Certainly think. the third take had a sheen. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to be... Uh, let's jump right in Yeah, let's, let's not... Let, well, unless you want to muck around, but we have, we're running out of time. <laughs> with the, uh, um, it's a, kind of, it might be an existential special, it might not be. We'll find out, because it, the, we have the author of, certainly in my top three, if not my number one uh, book of the year so far, which is at the Existential Cafe, and it's Sarah Bakewell, who also wrote, a, was it five years ago the Montaigne book came out? Yeah, or six. Could have yeah, been six. Fantastic book about the life of, of Montaigne, and her, her new book is... Josie, you must have been into the Existentialist, weren't you? you would, you've definitely gone through that period, if not, you still... Yes, but I would. I think, sadly, I got to it when I was too young, so it was very much about posing for me as a child. But yeah, yeah. I've got this image of you at kind of six years old now going around <laughs> with a copy of Camus sticking out of your Life satchel. is difficult for but... me. Yeah. <laughs> Most people get into it fairly early, but that's uh, that would be really impressive. But I still, yeah, like, um, yes. Yeah, Actually, what kind of pop-up yes. book would an existentialist pop-up book be? What would be the choices in there? Well, it would be, do, do you pull this up or not? Yeah. Do you pop this up or not? And then would it always have to be a disappointment when it No, because at the end it would be like, you might as well pop it up. Well, that would be up to you because you'd have to create your own meaning. So it would be up to you whether it was a disappointment or not. Because existentialists find their own meaning in things rather than just waiting to see whether it's going to be good or bad. So you start off in the book talking a little bit about the fact that some people have dismissed existentialism. There is a point now where that, that old line about existentialism, not so much philosophy, more a bad mood, that... Certainly there was a period of time where it went tremendously out of fashion. So do you feel that now existentialism has become... It, it, it's back in. People are, it's, people are not as dismissive as they might have been, say, 20 years ago. Well, I don't know. It might be going too far to say it's come back into fashion, but I think um, it's a good time to look at it again because some of the things that drove it out of fashion philosophically have themselves gone a little bit tarnished around the edges. I mean, the kind of structuralism was the first thing and then there was post-structuralism and and postmodernism and, and sort of quite a few um, movements like that all of which tended to kind of ignore the what you might call the human dimension just the ordinary individual trying to live their lives and talk about instead they wanted to talk about texts and signifiers and meanings and webs of of uh, interpretation and 
there's only the text there's no author they talked about the death of the author and the death of the individual and there's no such thing as human beings um that i think has kind of of course it there's still a lot of interesting thought in that area but a lot of that has kind of run its course it just doesn't um sound quite so fresh or exciting anymore to say that there's no such thing as as people. I mean, I'm kind of caricaturing that view a little bit. But but what is... I mean, this is the thing, is I've got all those beginner's guide cartoon books on structuralism, post-structuralism. C- can you praise what structuralism... What, what are its intentions? Well, structuralism, which was kind of the first one, was um, tried to... It really reversed, like, existentialism, say, and a lot of other philosophies start from the human individual, like Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Um, structuralism kind of takes all that to, to pieces, really, and starts from the other way around, because first you've got social structures, first you've got the society, and then the individual is just almost kind of grows within that. And what we think we're experiencing or what we think that we're thinking is um, doesn't... It, we're not really individual in the way that we think we are. It's We're just kind of the result of um, of all of these forces, all of these structures that come from outside us. They come from... The culture that we grow up into, say. Um, so, yeah, that was the kind of first. And that is a complete rejection of, of existentialism because existentialism is about um, a person like you or me. It's always a specific person. It's, a, it's, you know, it's not just any old human being. It's me, and I've got to decide what I want to do with my life, what kind of entity I want to be, what kind of person I want to be, depending on what I do. So um, it's there's a kind of complete you know mismatch. It's like this coming at opposite directions into the same thing, which is human experience and human culture, but totally different starting point. Do you think philosophy should have more? Because I'm not in terms of its link now with neuroscience. Because some of the things you're talking about there, and I think like Benjamin Leibitz's experiments on free will, and then you know David Eagleman in his last documentary talked about different ideas of actually how free will can remain even at the same time as Leibitz's experiments being kind of authentic. So should the, is the, is there enough communication between the kind of uh, the scientific method in this world and the philosophical method, or do you think that the two are perhaps too far apart? Um, well, I think there's even a more interesting question than that, which is that there isn't a kind of one scientific view which says, oh, we're all conditioned by our neurons and we don't have free will. And then philosophy, which is still kind of banging on about free will, it's actually just not that simple. There's many different ways of looking at it scientifically. And how you get from what the neurons are doing in our heads to our subjective experience of free will is a matter of interpretation for scientists, just as it is for philosophers they're both kind of wrestling with the same questions but um there's a huge difference between those in the scientific community who see um a kind of reduct i suppose a reductive view where it's like well this neuron's firing and that neuron is firing this very simplified version of the kind of things that they would say but and therefore it's i i have no control over it this isn't really me this is just a load of patterns of of neurons it's like a thing and those who say, well, in fact, there's a kind of out of all of that complexity, something develops, which is hard to describe, but which could be me and me making choices, even though, you know, you can't point to the bit of the brain that's actually doing it. So um, the, and even what if the you do point, it wasn't do. you pointing because yeah, they checked right. on your brain yeah. and you were pointing before actually the units of you appeared. Yeah, oh, it's that's... a bloody minefield, Josie, I'll tell you that much. It is. And I mean, what the existentialists do, which I think is really useful, is that they they remind us that um, because they they didn't say, you know, oh, we're completely free. 
we can do whatever we want and the, the body and the brain and none of that has got anything to do with it. They said, no, we're, we can, there's all sorts of things that form part of my situation so they can, you know, they're affecting me. They're making the kind of person that I am to some extent, but it's also always up to me what I make of that and sure. and what kind of person I'm actually going to be depending on how I live that out and how I well, sort of conduct all that. So, so we could do with a bit of that, I think, to kind of get us back to putting free, some kind of idea of freedom into the picture because yeah. we can't do without it, really. We can't function without it. Well, also, I feel like it's perfectly reasonable to go, yeah, 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 that's all right. I get it. I I'm, none of this is real. But I'm still in a position where whatever this is has to make decisions. Yeah. And it's still worth talking about that. Yeah. You know? And that includes, of course, all the people who are writing books saying, oh, you're not free. You just think you're free. You're not really free. But, you know. Who's saying that? I am. You don't yeah. exist. You told me that. <laughs> so, I remember yeah. Bruce, Bruce Hood's book, the uh, um, the self is it self illusion or the self delusion? It's self illusion. Uh, and I remember having to, to he wanted a little bit of a blurb on the back, and I wrote blurb about how the fact he hadn't even written the book, and, I, and they just cut it down to wonderful, which removed <laughs> all the stuff about me going. Well, actually, Bruce Hood doesn't even exist, uh, which is a very unfair pricey of his quite interesting book. But uh, when I think about it, so my first day of doing philosophy A level as a sixteen year old, we read this. Uh, Bertrand Russell chapter where he's like yeah 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 I get it I get it there's probably not a table but nonetheless let's just say there's a table and get on with it and I feel like it's yeah. that sort of thing is how I come to kind of deal with things I'm like yeah, yeah it's very complicated but what are we going to have for dinner do you know what I mean like it's yeah. still going to be it's and there's I mean it's it's great because when you study philosophy um but you seem to spend about 90% of your time sitting around tables talking about whether tables exist or not. <laughs> well, that's Feynman said that when he went to Richard mm -hmm. Feynman, when the physicist, when he went to, to think, oh, I'll have a little look about philosophy. And he sat there and eventually he said, I don't want to get involved, I just want to watch. And then they said, uh, sort of talk about what an object was. And uh, they said, like a brick, you know, it's an object, isn't it? And then Professor Feynman, and he said, and then they suddenly broke out. Oh, they spent six months talking about objects, and then none of them could define what they meant by an object. And he thought, I've had enough of this philosophy. <laughs> but that's the danger, isn't it, where that becomes a, then a cliche. And then you have yeah. very uh, pragmatic philosophy as well. I mean, I was thinking but somewhat... It's, some, yeah. Sorry. It's, it's also kind of what philosophy is. I mean, a philosophy is about... Um, somebody said that uh, philosophy is about making things more difficult, hmm. not less difficult. So if you've come to a solution, then maybe you haven't been doing very good philosophy because I'm sure as hell probably somebody else is going to come along and point out that that isn't the last word to be said. God, so, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's it. Maybe that's a compliment to say they spent six months talking about an object. See, anything. I don't think it is because with science, it's like you're always, you're still, you're moving on, but there's never an end to the question. So you're pretty certain, whereas where sometimes with philosophy you think, they're still on that question. If they get an answer to that question, what is a brick, what is a chair, what is a table, then that's still going to lead to other questions. But yeah. I, I love philosophy, Sunder, but I also sometimes have that difficulty where when you try and read one of the really you know, great books of philosophy and you realise that all you needed was a 10-page or 5-page precy because that book needed to exist for that particular thinker to work it out. But once they worked out, you go, this will do, this, this five-page precy. <laughs> or a nice cartoon book. I love the cartoon love books. Cartoon They're my favourite. Logio Comics, yeah. Logio Comics, the, the book all about mm. uh, Bertrand Russell and mathematics is fantastic. Beginner's yeah. Guides. The Beginner's Guides were brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that, that was my introduction to quite a few. Uh, I remember The Beginner's Guide to Marx was the first time. Mm. I thought I really finally understand what Marx is all about. I don't know whether I did or not, but I had the feeling that I did <laughs> after reading that. Really and some great. Um, so, uh, Robert Kierkegaard? Crumb did quite a few. Oscar Zarati does the, uh, I think, no, Robert Crumb does the Kafka one. 
which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so when did you start? At what point? I mean, in 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 the book at the Eccentric Cafe, the, you you have a picture of you sitting in the garden as a teenager reading. I can't remember who it was. Was it? Uh... Actually, I was. I think I was just holding my foot for some reason. I'm not sure. I wasn't actually. In the picture, I don't have it. I don't have a book in my hand, but I am holding my foot, which is in a kind of hippie sandal of the of oh. the era. And yeah, I don't know why I was holding my foot, but maybe that was a kind of you can read Josie's foot because she's got writing on it, haven't you? I've got a tattoo on my <laughs> you have, foot. You have a small tattoo, so you, you, the you, word you... hope, which I got when I was nineteen years old. I've never regretted it. It's been very useful. Yeah. Every now and again, in moments of existential despair, you... you've looked at your foot and gone hope. You what don't have anything? fear written on the other foot. <laughs> yeah. No, and my friends at school who dread. at the time didn't like me that much, I guess, were like, you've got less on the other foot. Uh, and I'd be like, no, I haven't. If anything, I would have faith on the other foot. <laughs> so you, when you, was, at what point did you start to get excited by philosophy? Well, about that point, about the point of the picture where I'm grasping my foot and sitting in a garden was around about the time that I first read um, Sartre's Nausea, his novel Nausea. That was That was what did it for me that was my first encounter with existentialist ideas and it's um i bought it with um some birthday money that was given to me by my grandmother for For which birthday 16th birthday that would have been very cool (laughs) but a long time after you and your was it sixth birthday (laughs) no i've made that up you see you didn't say that no it's definitely it's become in my head yeah yeah well teenagers is absolutely that time i think teenage teen teenagerhood is around about the time that a lot of people if they're going to encounter Camus or Sartre, that's around the time that it happens. And and I don't really know why. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of, there's lots of reasons that, that you can certainly kind of, it make they make sense. And I think both of them, it's that feeling of alienation. I mean, in fact, this this copy of, um, of Sartre's Nausea, which I bought with that money, it was partly the blurb on the back that made me buy it because it said it was it was a novel of alienation and the mystery of being. And I didn't really... I didn't know what alienation was, but it's funny because as a 16-year-old, of course, I was a perfect example of alienation. You know, it's, it's, I was totally alienated from, from everything. I didn't know who I was. I was alienated from myself. I had no idea what I was wanted to do or be. Or It was all very confusing. I think that's part of that stage. So, so this is a, a philosophy that can speak to that. Um, also, I think that it's quite cool. Like, it still seems cool. yeah. Yeah. I guess, like, literally cool in, like, a... You know, you think about The Outsider, where it's somebody who's so detached, you know? I did wear a black turtleneck for three years. Of course, because Though it's I cool. should make it clear, that was because of Hal Hartley's uh, The Unbelievable Truth film, where Robert Burke is dressed in it, and I thought, that's a good look. It's a very simple look. You get three of those. And it was mainly because I hoped one day, and it did happen all the way through the film. It's a wonderful film, his first um, feature film. People always go up to this guy, Robert Burke, who's actually someone who people believe was a murderer, and he's got out of prison now. And they go, uh, are you a priest? And he goes, no, I'm a mechanic. And I always wait. And then one day I was on the underground in my turtleneck and this guy leapt forward and he went, are you a priest? And I was able to go, no, I'm a mechanic. And then I never had to wear the turtleneck again. <laughs> so the nausea, though, the thing that that... And I actually have the same copy as you, which is the penguin... Is it, uh, With the penguin, Salvador Dali Salvador picture Dali on the cover. cover yeah. Green. And, and it's... Mm. The trouble I find with nausea is that I love that as a novel, but it also does seem to bring on in a way that perhaps The Outsider or The Stranger, whichever title you want to call it, it brings on the kind of sense of, well, I went into the library, actually I did start to feel a bit sick, and the whole world, it mm. seems to really enhance the sensations of alienation sometimes in, in what is not always the most positive manner. Yeah, I mean, he writes about the, the, the feeling of nausea that kind of overwhelms him when he's looking at 
objects. In fact, I mean, he's the one that really does it for him is he goes to a park and looks at a tree. And it's like a, a gnarled old chestnut tree, and the bark looks like boiled leather. He says, huh. and it's just it's kind of overwhelming. He has this sense of of like a physical discomfort. He, he calls the nausea. Um, I mean, several interesting things about that were Sartre con- sort of confessed once that he didn't, he hadn't exactly felt that himself. He tried to to stimulate it. He'd, he'd sort of tried to, and a friend of his, they were being filmed talking about the book, and uh, the other person said, "Yeah, but I'm sure I saw you once peering into a a pond and looking at some algae, and you looked distinctly nauseated when you were doing that." And his um, so he kind of it 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 was partly an intellectual construct, but I didn't know this at the time. I thought this was a real sensation that you would have if you looked at, at objects hard enough. So, um, and maybe it is. It's I just think that, you can do. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I went. I tried to do it. I went to a park and I found a tree and I looked at the tree as hard as I could for as long as I could, trying to feel nausea, and it just it didn't really. Didn't really work. You can't force <laughs> no. that, that level of nausea. You really have to just wait. It might be some algae in the end. It might even be a lily. Yeah. Who knows? It might even be a particularly gnarled-looking cloud. Yeah, that's such yes. a classic way that you would. Do... That's such a classic response as a sixteen-year-old. I can totally yeah. imagine it. It's sort of you understand it to some extent. Mm. You're desperate for it, and so you're like, oh, "Okay, well, how can I live this out now?" Yeah, it, 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 that's it. And for people who who read Camus, particularly the Stranger um, or the Outsider, whichever one you want to call it, um, that it kind of takes the form of trying to of trying to be blank, trying to feel nothing, and so it really fits with that kind of cool, like you're talking mm. about with the black turtleneck and the kind of just just trying to look as if you don't care about anything and that's a that's a big teenage thing as well isn't it you you don't want anybody to think that you care about anything um they really disagreed actually Camus and Sartre completely disagreed between each other about about that kind of meaninglessness that blankness because actually for Sartre it's never about meaninglessness and blankness if if you find the world meaningless or if you're completely without affect as the psychologist would say then something's gone horribly wrong in your kind of metaphysical makeup it shouldn't be like that that isn't really what life is as far as he's concerned so it's like my favorite quote of his that i have always on my desktop about the invincible summer like no matter what happens to you no matter how bad it gets there's a part of you that fights back that's wonderful mm. that's beautiful and it's so poetic and so hopeful and real and yeah yeah but, i mean i it, i think it is quite a hopeful philosophy Camus sort of talks about, you know, opening up to the, you know, kind of ecstasy to the sublime indifference of the universe. And that, I suppose that's positive if you kind of look at it in that way. Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir had a very different kind of positivity because it was about existentialism is about what you decide to do. And it's about engaging yourself with the world and, and actually sort of getting out there and making things happen. And about finding a meaning, making your own meaning to things. So people think of existentialism as being a really gloomy, hopeless philosophy, like you just sit there staring into your coffee cup or your brandy or whatever, your cognac, kind of feeling, you know, as if it's not worth doing anything. And it's really it's really not like that. It's a colossal misunderstanding of it, at least of, of that kind of Sartre and Camus version of it. Um, and funny enough, actually, I mean, that's partly... I think one reason why it got that image, particularly in English-speaking countries, was that after the war, when Sartre and Camus and Simone de Beauvoir all in turn, one by one, kind of went to America and they were fated and courted and they travelled around and everybody wanted to talk to them. But 
and all the talk was of existentialism because it was the fashionable European thing. But it brought with it some of this atmosphere of like a post-war Europe, you know, Parisian streets after the occupation and, and a Europe that had been sort of devastated and where everything was very glum and there were no kind of, there was none of the material products, all the material prosperity that there was in, in the US by comparison. So there was that, it came with that kind of gloom and that stuck to existentialism forevermore. Whereas what the French seemed to be making of existentialism around that time was that it was all about sex, having a lot of sex, mm. staying out all night in the jazz clubs, dancing, you know, until you collapsed, sort of having a fantastic time. It was it was like a party philosophy. So, was that sex authentic? And... I don't think it was. We should do it again. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake, it's <laughs> yeah. taken ages to have the authentic sex. I think it's interesting, as you say, because I don't think it's particularly miserable. I think it, someone that you talk about in the book briefly, you, you were saying that a few of the... Because I've, I've, I've only seen extremely good reviews, but you said a few people have kind of gone, well, it's a bit too French, this book, isn't it? You know, this, this very... Bloody Brexit yeah. ruining everything. <laughs> which, which almost seems in some ways as well, like uh, in terms of... English philosophy. You know, we, we, we have uh, Bertrand Russell, um, but we don't have, you know, once you have Scottish philosophy, then you can, then you've got David Hume and you've got mm. people like, you know, Adam Smith, I think you could probably say also philosophy. The, uh, hopefully you can. Uh, if not, we'll edit that bit out. Um, and uh, so it's, why, why do you think there is, what is it, is there something about particularly the English temperament or maybe the British temperament which seems to clash with what we see as continental philosophy? Well, the um, Iris Murdoch, who was the first philosopher in Britain to to become in well, not maybe not the first to become interested, but the first to write a book about Sartre and to introduce him to English audiences, was very keen on Sartre for a while. Later, she she sort of moved away from existentialism, but she said that um, the English were used to a philosophy that was about sort of eating cakes and drinking tea, and <laughs> um, the so. Th- this came in as a philosophy that was all about falling in love and joining the Communist Party. <laughs> it was just the whole atmosphere of it was different. And that's partly what made it really exciting to a lot of people in um, in the general world, if you like, in, in England and in, in Britain and in America. Um, but it didn't give it very much intellectual respe- respectability in the philosophy departments. But I think even long before that, there were two very different traditions which had developed and the kind of Anglo-American tradition, as it's, as it's usually called, is um, more analytical. It's more about trying to sort of understand, to define concepts. And um, But I think the crucial difference is that it's about um, trying to to get an answer, trying to, it's like you pose a philosophical problem and then you you hope to answer it, you hope to find an answer. And this is why these long conversations about how you define an object might happen. And then it might feel like a failure if you can't actually get there if you can't actually find an answer the continental tradition has got much more to do with the the history of philosophy i think it's about the way in which you know one school of thought then is read by another group of people maybe younger philosophers who who react against it who come up with a new idea or a new twist on it and the emphasis really is on the history of ideas the way that ideas develop um so they're kind of they're two such completely different traditions that it's like what we're saying about science and philosophy. It's kind of finding a common ground between them can be very difficult. It's as if they really are talking two different languages. Mm. Do you feel like the reason it might be coming back into fashion is because younger people are more inclined to being earnest in a different way? Because I sort of feel like people 
maybe 30 and under now are growing up in this place where they're like, right, so the climate is definitely getting fucked. All the institutions that our parents were able to use and rely on are being smashed apart. So in some ways we're sort of being thrown back on our own selves and decision-making and stuff like that. And we're going to be more sincere about it. And we're going to have lots of fun, sexy parties. <laughs> so it feels more, more in That sounds in very keeping. existentialist. Yeah, that definitely sounds like the perfect existentialism but combination. It does make more sense. And it, and it makes yeah. more sense that things like postmodernism are not as attractive to younger people. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to hear that because I think I think that um, existentialism supplies, you know, in a in a time when lots of urgent, wider matters seem to be calling for something to be done about them, something positive or a completely new beginning, maybe, or just something that's a bit more imaginative and that's breaking away from from old ideas about what left and right or what's right, you know, what's sort of the capitalism even, you know, it's... Um, it's a very exciting idea to think that you can really just start a new way of doing things, that it's up to you and that you can actually create a better world. And what's interesting is existentialism, I think, for a lot of people kind of 30, 40, 50 years ago, a lot of the appeal was, was about rebellion, about kind of rebelling against an older generation, rebelling against the bourgeois, as they always called it, way of doing things, getting married, buying property, having sort of children, but, you know, building up kind of prosperity and and um, being a part of the community and going to church and, and sort of obeying all the rules and, and then maybe having a quiet affair on the side, but, but, but never admitting don't... to it. And, and so there was this big rebellion thing. And, and actually now it's more interesting because that kind of needing to rebel against all the sort of forces saying, oh, no, you know, you mustn't, um, you know, you mustn't have sex or take drugs or sort of have a good time or must stay out after midnight or there's there's a lot of the youthful rebellion culture has become a kind of mainstream culture it's it, it doesn't seem you don't need existentialism to justify the idea that you can rebel against these things um, or that you can do things your own way but what really is i think even stronger than than ever and stronger than it was maybe kind of 10 or 20 years ago is is this feeling that something has to be done about the wider world, that somebody has to take responsibility and some someone somebody has to find a new way of doing things, which is, yeah. Which is quite exciting. <laughs> but also that most people, you know, under 40 have been denied the chance to be bourgeois in this country anyway. You know, you yeah. can't own a house. You're not going to pay off your student debt. I mean, I don't want to sound bleak. I'm sure a lot of people can. <laughs> but a lot of people, you know... Yeah, exactly. So ...are sort of denied mm. the idea of that. So in some ways it's like, well, what... What can we do? Yeah, that we need a different way of thinking about it, which is a little bit like, I think, because um, existentialism grew out of the post-war experience and particularly out of the experience of living under occupation in, um, in, in France and it grew in Paris out of this kind of younger generation who wanted to start things all over again on a different basis because the old way of doing things had been proved kind of not to work, not to be, not to be good enough. And some of that, I think, you know, is true today, different completely different situation but there's certain things in common this this feeling that actually just aspiring to own a house maybe is not going to do it because it's it's very diff it's very unlikely to happen it's very difficult to get into and, and is it actually the best way to live to be you know 
constantly trying to invest in property. So, yeah, no, I think it's... Uh... Sorry, it's I got so problem. excited. Yeah, I was like, I please let me pitch this to you. <laughs> but I wonder, is there a problem with it? The, the idea of rebellion and the change in that idea of rebellion, which is that once rebellion became a kind of a commercial marketing tool, huh. means that rebellion can all mm. be on the surface now. So that overly authentic waiter or whatever it might be, it, that bit of appearing. There are lots of people who, when you see the way they're dressed, because things like, like shockwaves or whatever, mm. it, you can really rebel because your hair can go at that angle. And that that can then become the end of the rebellion. And so rebellion becomes this very surface thing about, you know, the cars that are sold to people. I was going to say to people of my age, they're sold to me. But I can't buy. I haven't got a driver's license. Never learned. So stop trying to sell me cars, you idiots. Show me other (laughs) cinema adverts. Um, But that moment of, uh, you know, which says, if you own this car, then you're someone individual and different. And you go, well, obviously you're not, because otherwise they'd only be making one, two or three of them. But they're not. They're all. So that. Mm. In some ways, there's been this, uh, and I don't know whether it's my generation as opposed to your far more noble generation, <laughs> Josie, who's bigging up your bloody generation. Isn't it? Um, and uh, that that rebellion has become this thing which is about the articles, the, the, the watch you are wearing. The... Well, of course, yeah. And an existentialist would say that it's, it's become completely authentic, inauthentic. That's not what, you know, that's not what rebellion is. That's not what authenticity is. Um, so all it's it's a commodity. It's And... Being good existentialist would would mean sort of training yourself out of being fooled by that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's youthful rebellion has become a kind of a style thing, and um, authenticity has become a commodity. But all the more reason, I think, why why you kind of have to get back to the if you're going to be an existentialist, you would certainly have to get back to the fundamentals of of what. Um, what freedom and authenticity actually mean and it's certainly nothing to do with having the right haircut or driving the right car what were you reading before you before you started getting into into philosophy and philosophical novels and so so just before you started holding your foot what were you <laughs> reading then well i was a huge huge fan like i read it i must have read it four or five times i think the whole the whole series just before i discovered existentialism my favorite writer was mervyn peak and i read the gormenghast trilogy just almost like in constant rotation not so much the unfortunately the last volume of it was unfinished when mervyn peak died so it Is just that wasn't Titus as good alone or, yeah, yeah and it was it's when the main character sort of leaves his ancestral castle where he was born and goes out into the world but unfortunately really he didn't have time to make very much of that so I probably didn't read that one quite as much. But the first two, um, I just read over and over again. I mean, it's it absolutely is a book that creates its own reality. I mean, it's it, it's fantasy, but it's also about the way in which it was written. I mean, apart from anything else, he uses an awful lot of words that are about 15 or 16 letters long. So, <laughs> And at the time, I thought that was really great. So I tried to kind of do the same, and I started writing. I'd start doing as much sesquipedalianism as I possibly could. And George um, Orwell's furious <laughs> at you. Yeah, I know. I discovered George Orwell's politics in the English language and, you know, his, his very good advice on, on how to write. I discovered much later, I didn't discover that long words are not necessarily a good thing until at least another three or four, four or five maybe years after that. 
Um, Don't but... tell Will Self. <laughs> He'll be furious. But what, why do you think... God, that's interesting because Mervyn Peake is someone who was certainly, I, I would I would imagine, the 60s, 70s, etc., in terms of student reading, in terms of, you know, almost like... I know a very different kind of book, but there's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, huh. yeah. there's the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and there is, is, is work by Mervyn Peake. And then he seems to have uh, you're probably... You know, but even before the BBC tried to dramatise it, yeah. and that, that wasn't seen as Which, an enormous success. But he went out of fashion. I know there was someone who was mm. trying to get a book about Mervyn Peake out, and no publisher wanted to touch it. And yeah, and there's been a few. I mean, there's been a few sort of unpublished manuscripts, and there's a book called Peake's Progress that came out uh, a few years ago that kind of collected together all the because he was also, and of course, there's his art as well mm. because he was, um, you know, if anything, thought of himself more as an artist than as a writer. I think, um, and his poetry. I mean, there's you know, there's lots to enjoy. Um, I don't know if Mervyn Peake ever had... It wasn't quite like Tolkien, where it's like this kind of... That it seemed to have a profundity of meaning about it. I think it was all just kind of good fun. There was no real... Yeah, it's a good point. There's no real philosophy in Mervyn Peake that I can think of. There's just incredible sort of... Quite a lot of humour, actually. And um, and amazing images. Just ama- amazingly strong kind of imaginative visual images of his locations, of the castle of Gormenghast and of all the characters who kind of quite Dickensian, kind of excessive characters, you know, over-the-top characters. Um, but I thought it was I thought it was just fantastic. And um, um, I tried to read... I mean, you know what it's like when you kind of try and go back and reread something that you used to love. It's mm. It can be a painful experience, and I, I have tried a couple of times rereading Mervyn Peake and can't quite make up my mind about it because I don't exactly hate it now, but I, it's like I have to get myself into the same state of mind i have to just accept those long multi-syllable <laughs> portentous words you know in a way that i wouldn't from anybody else but mervyn peak has special dispensation because i used to love him so much that i accept it there is a sadness isn't there where you you realize that with certain things like the, the excitement that someone will have when they 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 go oh you've never read any books by oh you're and they the envy they have that there is someone who is about to read something mm. that they found but that love that intense love uh, and you know I was thinking the other day about some of the things that I was utterly obsessed by as yeah. a teenager some of those things some of those scrawls that would be on the front of every single one of my exercise books and that excitement and that to return to that it's very hard to mm. get that same level of utter adoration and that you can get you know as you get older you can you, you don't have to be melancholy there are smaller things and you can still be excited by films but you, that, that moment of revelation becomes harder and it's harder to obtain. It's never the same, is it? I mean, and one of the big differences is rereading. I mean, I do mm. reread now. You know, I, I do quite a lot, but not like I used to do when I was a kid when I reread things, you know, like 10 times, which is, you know, and I'd probably reread some things kind of 10 or 20 times when I was still only about eight years old. I don't know how I found the time, but, you know, it's just, it becomes a kind of, you read in such a different way. It's like you you really are discovering the world of of that, that that book is creating and it's so fresh mind you i think one of the interesting things is we can't really know whether we genuinely did read like that or is some of it an artifact of memory it's like yes. you remember there's an aura about what you think you remember about childhood reading which might be it's just come in because it's full of nostalgia and it's kind of summoning up your own lost childhood and you know all of those things that give it a kind of I think Imagine there is that, something though because mm. you look you see those exercise books or those scribbly notes that you had and for a moment maybe it was only a week maybe it was a month maybe it was a year but that was the thing that was the ultimate thing 
What books do you most often... I mean, I, I have to admit, The Outsider, Stroke the Stranger uh, and Nausea are two. If, if I can't think of what else, I'm not sure what I'm going to read today. Uh, they're novels that I've gone back to a lot. Oh, right, that's it. That's no, so I, lo- good. I still so love re- still, I still read still, them and yeah. I still... Partly because also, there's a, as you were saying about the brevity, they're, as well mm. as having lots of ideas in them and the way you interpret them, they change. When you, Like you were saying, when you were a kid, mm. you read things, you might still enjoy them and then you go, I didn't understand any of that. Yeah. And and like returning to paintings when you've read another book about that painter or that technique or that history. So we're talking about when, mm. you know in, in another podcast, and you go now I understand it differently. So yeah. there can still be that kind of revelation there. It's like the Great Gatsby. Yeah. When I, I read... oh, the Great Gatsby, we should read that mm. once a year. Well, I've yeah. I've reread yeah. it about every five years, and, and that every really time changes. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, certainly, for the first time I read it, I just I didn't understand at all that it was you know that you you have to read it kind of with a you have to read between the lines yeah. and and sort of. I didn't get that at all. And I remember reading the ending and being like, what? Uh, uh, (laughs) It's just jumped. Why has it done that? Yeah. This book's broken. Yeah. So what what, what book would you, if if you have those moments of going, right, I'm not going to be, I I just want to have the joy of returning to the familiar. Yeah. I mean, I do sometimes return to childhood books, um, even from earlier childhood, you know, uh, but that's that's kind of just a pure exercise in nostalgia. Like there's some books by Enid Blyton. And um, I was a big fan of Willard Price. I don't know if, He's very much read, but he wrote these kind of adventure stories based on these two boys who went collecting animals for zoos. Um, so they travelled all over the world. I think they're still out there. They would normally be next yeah. to the Nancy Drew and Hardy uh, sure. boys. Uh, okay. But yeah. it'll be it's very. It's because I was hugely into animals. Adventure. Yeah. Um, it, I was just massively into animals at a certain phase. So, And I do return to those, actually, with kind of more pleasure even than Mervyn Peake. But among the kind of more, you know... I suppose, grown-up things. Um, the book that, that I return to more than anything else, and I kind of read it, usually it's a long book, so I can't read it every year. I, re- I read it probably about once every uh, f- five years maybe, is um, The Magic Mountain, um, Thomas Mann. I don't know if you've ever read that. but no. it's no. Now that is a book that is absolutely different every time I read it. It's like, you know, it's incredible how it changes because I, it's, it's there's just so much in it. I mean, it's kind of a... It's it's digressive, although it's all kind of woven into themes. But it tells the story of um, this young man, Hans Kastorp, who goes up to Davos, now mainly known for its kind of you know global economic meetings. But it was a um, resort for patients suffering from tuberculosis. It was a you know sanatorium, and he goes up there to visit his cousin, who's been diagnosed with tuberculosis. He's only supposed to stay for three weeks, but he actually stays for seven years because he gets so drawn into the life of it, and he starts either imagining or he really has you know it's or, or it's quite unclear for a long time whether he really develops to TB himself. But he likes to he sort of gets besotted by the whole idea of this sanatorium and illness and this this world which is completely cut off from the rest of, of Europe. But in fact, it's a kind of microcosm of, of Europe in the years leading up to the First World War. Um, and all these discussions take place between, you know, these. he, he meets these characters who try to persuade him to become a kind of humanist, rationalist, or another one wants him to become a kind of more of a, a mystical irrationalist. So um, he just encounters all of these characters. Um, it's, again, you know, it has episodes that are pretty funny I mean it's kind of ironic and um and amusing at least you know I find it and I've always found it kind of entertaining but it's it's a book of ideas and it's it's a book of um this sort of bizarre world that's set apart maybe it's got something to do with Gormenghast that maybe I like reading about these worlds that are set apart from 
from ordinary life because it's a little bit like that. See, now you brought up um, Thomas Mann. For some reason, that makes me think of Herman Hesse. Mm. Now, there's someone whose books were... There's a certain point in time... Again, it, it's the mm. uh, Young Student Existentialist yeah. Bookshelf. And I now read very mixed things about, you know, Steppenwolf mm. was, is probably mm. one of his most famous, The Glass Bead Game. So did you, when you were researching this book, did you kind of return also to some of the things like that and see... I didn't actually go back to Herman Hesse for this book, although it would be interesting to go back to Herman Hesse full stop because um, I was a fan of Herman Hesse, got... You know, I've got about a foot of Herman Hesse on my shelf, but um, but I haven't. I've tried to go back to it, not really been that kind of. It just doesn't work for me anymore. It just doesn't. I mean, probably the best one or the one that I liked best then and kind of still do is is um, Demian, which is um, well, it's it's a little bit like Steppenwolf. It's a kind of you know slightly unreal tale of of. Uh, um, of a of a strange character and sort of different levels of reality and uh yeah it doesn't really it doesn't really do much for me anymore so what was like your worst revisit or... is the one that you've gone but you know that bit where you go oh i've just oh, i found no, it in a second yeah. hand shop this was my favorite thing mm. that's oh oh god oh i backed the wrong <laughs> horse <laughs> yeah. um the swiss family robinson would be a pretty good example oh, of really? uh, going back to childhood stuff again because i loved that when i was a kid when i went back to it and read it as an adult it's just this like crashingly kind of po-faced allegory of um, Christian fortitude and virtue, and yeah. it's it's really it's really awful. But when I was a kid, I just read it as a desert island survival story, which I loved, and I was fascinated by how they went out and kind of built you know rafts or sort of, but they they built they're extremely um, good at building houses, and I mean having been shipwrecked with practically nothing by the by the end of the book, they've pretty much reconstructed a kind of perfect, you know, sort of virtuous society and this uh, this this very quite authoritarian, traditional sort of family, Swiss family. So, so it's a positive yeah. version of the Mosquito Coast then? Really, yeah, well, yes, I guess that's it. Yeah, if you imagine, <laughs> sort of going in reverse. You've done all that, haven't you, Josie? It's, it's on the telly just now, come out, yeah. Josie I got a review the... in the Telegraph today. I haven't watched it yet, but I think... Uh, the, I was most worried. I had an argument with someone, and it, it appears that they didn't really show that, which is yeah, great. Yeah, she got off to, to Bear, Bear Grylls' exciting, right. terrifying island. It was ridiculous. Yeah. It was a weird decision to make, but I think Did it was you a enjoy good... it, or is that not the word? Yeah. Mm. It was a rich, unusual experience that I would never otherwise have had and so I'm glad I did it but um, I, there was a review of it in the Telegraph and it said Josie Long just grumbles the whole time and I was thinking I cannot relate that to my experience of it because I was really positive but it, or to my mind I thought I was but um, it also said some really nice things about my comedy and I thought that's the first time the Telegraph's been really nice about oh, my comedy oh so what they've done is they've gone what's surprising is how grumbly Josie Long is when she's so positive in the uh... in the comedy but yeah. I was thinking <laughs> well done Telegraph I'm going to use that as a pull quote for my very left wing shows and that'll teach you <laughs> No, but the trouble is, you see, with arts criticism, I think the newspapers it very rarely reflect no, no, I know. what their politics is. I've got lots of people oh, you've who probably got who better reviews from the reviews. Telegraph than you've had from the Guardian. I don't know. Anyway, oh. it doesn't matter. Yeah. It was well, it was a really yeah, interesting let's not, let's, experience. Let's not make this about you, Josie. We were quite <laughs> terrible. We well, um, as a group, we didn't do as well as the uh, just normal civilian ones. But ads was for charity, so it doesn't count. But it's it was very interesting. It was really interesting. It taught me a lot about difference, which I thought it would teach me the opposite. The difference between people. Yes. Right. How much people's tempos are different. How much people's entire mm. vibe 
is different from one another and how much I had taken for granted that it wasn't. Mm. Like when we were all stripped down, I was like, gosh, you have such a different value system to me and the way that you express yourself is so different to me and it's almost inexplicable for me, you know? It sounds a bit like um, Sartre's famous kind of hell is other people. <laughs> well, it wasn't, there's definitely wasn't a couple then. when I saw the trailer and I was saying that's at least, at the very least, it's a circle towards hell if it's not hell. I won't say which ones. But I tell you what, there are the a couple of the most wonderful people I've ever had the joy to be around on that island. You sound like Colin Wilson having a peak experience. <laughs> Annoyingly, that's what I was going to get onto, and we've really nearly run out of time, which is one of the only, in fact, perhaps the only English existentialist you, you mention in the book is Colin Wilson, who has such a, we've talked about him before in this podcast, such an interesting narrative, this, this groundbreak, this book that was lauded, and then this this decline into writing seven hundred yeah. different books about every form of murder. Partly because he needed the money, I gather, was mm. was one of the reasons. But um, and that's partly because he spent all the money that he got from the outsider. He spent on records because he was a huge music huh. fan, and he just you know went out and immediately bought kind of about a thousand records or something. And these days, wandered all this money. He'd yeah, exactly. Right. He'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> And so, then he wouldn't have to write endless books about the occult and murder, which is what he did. But but he was really, I mean, I think that, you know, he was a kind of, he was a bit full of himself. I mean, he did go around proclaiming himself a genius. But he had a hard um, press, really, on, on the basis of that. And it's partly because I think the, the English press were, they could sort of accept a, a working class Midlands, you know, kid without a university education, very young, who wrote a big bestseller of a book while sleeping rough on Hampstead Heath or in fact he he wasn't actually sleeping rough anymore when he wrote the book but that was the that was the publicity thing um they could kind of accept that um up to a point but once he started getting ideas above his station he had to be firmly slapped down so it's like oasis i'm going to sneeze she has a terrible sorry. Gallagher allergy. So sorry. But it's like Oasis it's saying we're the greatest band in the world. It's like, okay, you can do that for two albums. I mean, and I mean, it's probably that they also, in my opinion, are not the greatest band in the world. But yeah, yeah after a while, it's like, all right. Yeah. Yeah, his was and... fast, though, wasn't it? I mean, his was, we're going to Cornwall and never coming back. And that's even before the, the second one. Is it Age of Defeat? No, it's, um, um, it's Religion and the Rebel. Or, yeah, Religion and the Rebel was yeah. the second one, Yeah, which was a kind of follow-up to, which was just, to The uh, Outsider. And then he did write the same book quite mm. often. He, he, yeah, he... I mean, I, a bit of a victim of overproduction, I think. But And, you know, I mean, yeah, it was a, as a book, it's, it's, it, well, it's, a, it's a shambles. It's a book shambles. Huh. That seems very appropriate to say that. It is a shambles um, in the... It, there's a lot of quite random stuff sort of thrown in mainly on the basis that it all interested him and that he happened to read all of those books while he was in the British Library for the kind of three months or so that it took him to write the book. But um, it introduced a lot of people to ideas and to philosophy and to continental literature and, you know, that that had not come across that sort of thing before. And it's hugely exciting. It was an inspiring book. I mean, one of the people who was really influenced by it was my dad, who... Um, I mean, he was, you know, he wasn't a kid anymore. He was actually working in a bookshop. Well, he was running it. He was a manager of a bookshop. The book came in. He read it. And, um, and you know, it kind of transformed the way that he saw he saw the world. It just, it changed his life, really. And, um, you know, he makes no bones about the fact that it, it really did open up a whole perspective on ideas and and literature that he'd never had before. And... You know, he had a lot in common with Colin Wilson. My dad also came from the Midlands, hadn't been to university. Very intelligent, very bright, very interested in lots and lots of things. But, you know, 
hadn't had a, a kind of formal education of the type that before if you wanted to write a book you were expected to have been through the right kind of channels and Colin Wilson just blew all that to smithereens so you know a really interesting person I still love reading in fact mm. it's also a book that I buy every time I find a different version with a different cover I buy it I have six right. copies of the outside Hack. including first edition it's like <laughs> and there's so I don't know why there's something about Colin Wilson I think one summer holiday I'm going to sit and I'm just going to read all of them strength to dream the whole thing and all his and, science fiction as well I just he... bought the killer the other day for 50 pence which nice. is uh, um the what was the final thing uh oh there was one more question I had and we've been nearly I'm out so of time sorry, I wish I've I could lost be more it Josie I've lost it where's it gone oh Ray Gosling I'll right. just bring up Ray Gosling. Do you remember the the uh, documentary filmmaker Ray Gosling, who? Oh, hang on, what did another he make? Midlands one, another right. Nottinghamshire boy. Did he make that thing about the Who? Uh, Ray, no, Ray Gosling. He, he he used to. He just made very. He was kind of one of the people, and he was seen. I just wondered if you'd ever read Some Total, which is one of the recommendations for today, which is kind of like you know somewhere between beat and existential novel. He wrote when he was barely out of his teens. Right, no, I haven't, but I will now. And it is, and it's again, Nottingham, and, and very. The, the sad thing is, there was a nice piece in the Oldie actually this week by um, uh, Tony Gould, who's also a biographer of mm. Colin McInnes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he said it's sad that for many people they'll remember, because what Ray Gosling is perhaps famous for, and John Ronson in an interview now, in some people's minds, is in a report about euthanasia, he talked about killing his boyfriend who was dying from AIDS. And it then turned out that he didn't do that. And he kind of, I think, had almost imagined that he really did. And and it's one Mm. of those very sad, ignominious ends to what had previously been a really wonderful Mm. career. Mm. And just some total is you you see the incredible ability. Again, I was just thinking when you mentioned Mm. the Midlands, this, this, this young guy writing this book, and then he made the most beautiful documentaries. And I would like, if anyone's listening and would like to help, I would like to do a one-day festival of the documentaries of Ray Gosling. But I would highly recommend some total. Can I ask you what you would highly recommend people, apart from obviously your own work, and we haven't talked about Montaigne, and people must read that book as well. It's a wonderful book about Montaigne. Um, Well, I mean, just to name things that have come out recently, um, my favourite book of the last year is um, Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexeyevich. I don't know if anybody's already come across it, but she talks to people in Russia about the days of the Soviet Union and the days of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the transition to all the various changes that have happened in in Russia ever since. It's an enormous... um, tome it's recently translated it was published last year by Fitzgeraldo editions for this fantastic small press and um, it's just a moving very very humane I think she's just you know she's just interested in human stories she kind of keeps herself out of it she just lets people talk on the page and it's an incredible portrait of of an entire society and and of change and of the 20th century and very moving as well Wow. Thank you very much, Sarah. That sounds great. Better do the uh, credits <laughs> mm. for, uh, and I presume that existential cafe must be coming out in paperback pretty it soon. It will be. It'll be March. Yeah. Oh, we'll buy the Probably. hardback one. It's yeah. a great book. Yeah. And uh, so, Josie Long, would you like to do this afternoon's credits? Yes. So we want to say thank you to people that have um, been part of our Patreon because it means that we can make this, and we're so grateful. Um, Sean Barham. John Ottaway, Morgan Jones, Leo Vagoda, Keely Geary, Katrina Brown, 
And you can do... I'll do the next. So then uh, Dan Bennett, Natalia Finneron, Dermot Fitzsimmons and James Eccles. Thank you very much for your support. And if you don't want to regularly support us, then you can also go on to PayPal. And if you don't want to support us at all, you can do it for free. It's all fine. Um, So thank you very much, Sarah Bakewell. And thank you very much, Josie Long. Goodbye. Thank you, Robin. So it's the big book giveaway in a desperate bid to try and get some more space to get more books in my house. I'm having to get rid of some books that I love. I have read all of them that I'm giving away. Some of them may well have embarrassing, weird little pencil marks in the margin of ideas for jokes that never actually became jokes. And so our giveaway today, randomly chosen, and uh, as we always say, unfortunately, this is only open to UK residents, but we will work out a way one day to also give things to those of you who are not in the UK. And so the winner today... Today on the Sarah Bakewell podcast is Mike Sheldon. So congratulations, this week's winner is Mike Sheldon. So Mike, if you either tweet us at Cosmic Genome or if you want to email us via cosmicgenome.com slash contact, then we will send you that box of books. Thanks. Bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.